This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Thursday afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Major League Baseball has some key economic issues as it opens a new season. We'll take a look at them in our next segment. But right now, the Census Bureau data finds the population of the Chicago metro area continued to decline in the one-year period ending on June 30th. We're joined by Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Greg? Thanks for joining us today. And what are some of the numbers? Uh, what, how many people moved out of Cook County last year? Well, it's, uh, the numbers are not great, but the, the, the good news, I guess, is that it's not as uh, it's not as big of a departure as it was last time. It dropped from uh, uh, something like eighty-five thousand to an estimated sixty-five uh, or, or seventy thousand. Um, uh, that is better. Um, uh, I don't know whether it it means that the, the crest of people leaving big metropolitan areas like Chicago uh, because of COVID uh, has definitely turned. Um, uh, some national reporting uh, compared what happened here to what happened in other cities, and it's and the same kind of pattern is true in, uh, for instance, in New York and Los Angeles, uh, but uh, the reversal there seems to be a little more pronounced than it is here. Yeah, some people, uh, and this is nationwide, uh, took advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic and the move towards remote working to move to uh, maybe a rural area or a city or town uh, with a smaller population. Uh, And because they could work remotely, they could go to a place with less hustle and bustle. Uh, That trend certainly seems to be slowing down. How much of this, though, and and obviously the numbers don't uh, go into the reasons why people are moving out, but is it uh, because people are moving to either Houston or Phoenix is this an outflow of retirees finally pulling the trigger on their on their home in the Sun Belt um, the, the, the trend of, of, of people when they reach retirement age headed someplace where it's warm you don't have to shovel snow is not new Rob it's, it's gone on forever it may have accentuated a little bit lately um, uh, one of the things that may be working a little bit to our advantage now, but it's a little early to tell, is international immigration. Uh, the Chicago area has uh, has lost uh, uh, Native Americans, um, uh, people who were born in this country, rather steadily uh, for for a long time. But we've always been able to attract immigrants. Now, immigration got cut significantly during the Trump years. Uh, the Biden administration has loosened those, uh, and you now see regular reports on your station and other places about about. Refugees coming here, uh, people from the Ukraine and whatever. That will help our population uh, uh, long run. Uh, and the Census Bureau said that nationally, there's there's no question that the immigration into the country has rebounded from the low.
low levels that was at a few years ago. That will help us. Uh, the question is whether it helps us enough to make this uh, not just a less people, uh, a smaller decline, but actually attract people and, and grow our population. Yeah, let's talk about uh, attracting younger people, younger workers to the city to do the classic, what I call the Big Ten migration. You graduate from uh, the University of Michigan. You move to Wrigleyville. You meet a significant other. You buy a condo. Then you have kids. Then you move to the suburbs. Uh, how, how, did, how is that cycle perpetuating itself? You know that's a really good question. If uh, if you can uh, if you can do your work from uh, from Schaumburg uh, or uh, Wheaton or wherever uh, and never have to go downtown, a lot of people are going to be tempted to do that. Um, uh, people have been slowly returning to work in the central area, but it's it's been snail's pace. It's uh, all 56, 57 percent of what it was, uh, which actually puts us a little better off than L.A. or New York. Um, Nobody, to be perfectly honest, nobody knows what what the new paradigm is going to be. Um, uh, I'm personally of the opinion that uh, that uh, uh, history proves uh, that uh, that there's value in human interaction, physically bumping shoulders with somebody, and you get more creativity and energy there. Uh, But uh, we live in a new time. We haven't quite figured out the rules yet. So we're slowly getting back to where we were, but we have a long climb yet to go. And whether we're going to get all the way back or not, I don't know. If you know, let me know. I want to place a, a a couple quick financial bets. Well, let me uh, let me chill me let me check with my uh, consultant, as it were, and get back to you, Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up as the baseball season gets underway, MLB dealing with several important economic issues. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The Cubs open their season at Wrigley Field this afternoon. The White Sox on the road in Houston. Meantime, Major League Baseball starts the year dealing with several crucial issues involving minor leaguers and broadcasting. We're joined by Andrew Zimbalist, professor of economics at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Andy, thank you for joining us today. And let's start off with that collective bargaining agreement that MLB reached with its minor league players union. The deal announced last night. What does this mean not only for the big clubs, but for the affiliates that survived that uh, minor league culling a couple of years ago and for the players? Well, let's start with the players. The minor league players now at the very lowest level are guaranteed $19,000 a year plus plus housing allowance. Uh, And so that finally puts them above the poverty line. Uh, at the higher levels in minor league baseball, you make up up to about 45000 Basically, what's happened is that the salaries have, have doubled for the minor league players, 5,500 minor league players. So that's good news. Of course, uh, for the owners, it's not terrific news because it means that the uh, minor league salaries have, have more than doubled. And already it's the case that minor league salaries and signing bonuses account for about 5% of all baseball revenues. So that's likely to go up to uh, 8 or 9% now. So that makes it a little bit tougher on, on ownership, but I don't think we have to uh, cry too many tears for them. There's also been a great deal of disruption in the uh, the business of baseball broadcasting, uh, especially yeah. when it comes to uh, baseball and their uh, regional sports network cable TV deals. And as right. we head into the 2023 season, uh, one of the big regional sports network owners, uh, Diamond Sports, a, a subsidiary of Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns the uh, Bally Sports Network uh, uh, branded uh 
regional cable networks across the country, including Milwaukee and, and St. Louis and Minneapolis and in Ohio, uh, they, they're, they're in bankruptcy. And uh, that does disrupt the revenue streams for uh, several uh, major league organizations that were counting on cable TV money to allow them to pay out those big free agent contracts. That's exactly right. Uh, roughly 15 of the 30 teams has a local broadcasting contract with with Valley or, or Diamond Sports, and the company is in bankruptcy. Uh, it's it's unclear at this point whether the the local affiliates of Valley will will have the resources to pay for the announcers, will have the resources to broadcast the games, and or the resources to pay the rights fees that they've agreed to with the teams. And the fundamental underlying problem here, of course, is that the old cable model is increasingly defunct and uh, teams are going to have to look for direct-to-consumer marketing and and other vehicles to to generate the revenue. So uh, Commissioner of Baseball Rob Manfred has said that he's made arrangements for the games to be broadcast, uh, whether or not the the local affiliates of Valley are able to do it. And then the question, of course, will be how to generate revenue for the teams. And and that primarily, I think, uh, at least in the short run, will be direct-to-consumer marketing. And then about uh, about 10 years ago, there was a point in time where uh, teams did reach these uh, nine-figure deals with their regional sports networks because live sports was seen as the thing. Uh, it was TiVo-proof back when uh, DVRs were the uh, killer app in, uh, in, in television. So they would reach these 10-year front-loaded, multi-billion-dollar deals uh, that allowed them to uh, pay for a lot of players in the early going. And I'm guessing once those deals run out, they are not going to be renewed because uh, the way people watch baseball, uh, now I won't even say on TV anymore, but via video, will be very different. It will. And, you know, one of the reasons it's going to be different is is that all of the professional team sports in the United States have uh, undertaken contracts with sports book uh, companies, betting companies. Uh, and they're hoping to generate a, a lot more revenue by by having these sports books operate parlors inside the stadiums and and having the sports book companies pay integrity fees and and other fees for the data that they use from the major league teams. Whether or not that will come to pass still remains to be seen. But they're hoping also that the the, the greater opportunities to engage people with betting on the games will make it more likely that they'll watch the games on on TV and more likely that they'll purchase the direct to consumer feeds that will be available. But there are a lot of question marks, that's for sure. Andrew Zimbalis, professor of economics at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, federal regulators want to keep medical devices safe from cyber criminals. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Any conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The Food and Drug Administration will now require that certain medical devices meet specific cybersecurity guidelines. Let's learn more from Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Jerry, thank you for joining us today. And once again, uh, as the Internet of Things evolves, uh, that means uh, more devices are uh, exposed 
to the internet and connected to the internet. So what medical devices are we talking about here? Well, uh, some of the worst uh, offenders right now are insulin pumps and pacemakers. But quite honestly, any device that has RF connection or Wi-Fi connection to it is susceptible to potential hacking. So this means a, a pacemaker that is installed inside a human being and uh, regulating the, uh, the the blood flow uh, in their heart and their heartbeat uh, is connected to the Internet and uh, is vulnerable to a hacker. Well, it may or may not be connected to the Internet, but it may be accessible via RF for radio frequency or from a Wi-Fi connection. So what a lot of doctors will do is they'll have an RF or radio frequency network that only they have access to. But you walk outside and anywhere between 300 feet and 300 yards, uh, that device becomes accessible. So there have been national politicians, you know, heads of state that were supposed to be getting uh, the new quality, new type of, of uh, pacemakers that the Secret Service disallowed them from getting it because they could be uh, they could be uh, targets of assault, uh, but the real offenders, which are internet accessible, are those uh, those insulin pumps, and it's really easy to gain access to them. In many cases, to some of the chips that are in these, uh, to to be able to change the amount of insulin that's going on, so you increase the insulin and give them an overdose or decrease it and, and cause them to have any other kind of problem. Uh, so there's there's a lot of devices out there today that with these Internet of Things, the amount of security that's in these itty bitty little chips is very minimal. So having a, having just a user ID and password for the application doesn't provide the level of security necessary. They don't they don't always encrypt the data going to them. And then very quickly, Jerry, does this mean that uh, if you have uh, a device that uh, is is now subject to more stringent cybersecurity standards, do you have to go back to the hospital and get a new device? No. In most cases, what these companies have done is have developed new firmware that can be downloaded at your at the doctor's office that will add the level of security as po- that's possible. And, and quite honestly, the things that uh, have been installed you know, in the last probably six months to a year are are very stable for the most part. But it would be my recommendation before you go in to have something like this done to talk to your doctor, to do some research, to find out if these are things that have had breaches in the past. Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, replicating a favorite pet through cloning. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The Cubs open their season with a game at Wrigley Field while the White Sox are on the road in Houston. The investigation is underway following a deadly crash involving military helicopters in Kentucky. In Technology Thursday, you can buy a cloned version of your favorite dog or cat, but it comes at a steep price. Also on the tech front, that may be a, a human sounding robot taking your order at a fast food drive through. 
WBBM business. The markets are higher, but not by much. The Dow up three and a half. The NASDAQ is up 53. The S&P 500 is up 10. We have 41 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies. Topping out at 52 this evening. It's 1231. And topping our news at the half hour. It's opening day at Wrigley Field. The Cubs face the Brewers and the stage is set for what the Cubs hope will be a winning season. Here's WBBM's Mike Krauser. There's something about opening day, the return of the game, the anticipation of what's to come, not just on the field, but the promise of spring before the monotony of a 162-game season. Why is the first one so special? Uh, the first one is so special because I think everyone can remember their opening day. That's the Cubs Director of Communications, Julian Green. The Cubs are expecting new rule changes, shortening playing time and increasing action, as well as a slight drop in ticket prices will put more behinds in the seats and will break the monotony. Most importantly, says the team's president of business operations, Crane Kenny. We just got to play better baseball and uh, we're on the path to do that. The executive VP of sales and marketing, Colin Faulkner, says the 2016 World Series trophy in the new trophy room needs company. I got to be a lonely trophy. It, it's, it's the only trophy in there for now. That's the story from opening day here at Wrigley Field. Nine people are dead following a crash involving two Army helicopters in Kentucky. A spokesperson for Fort Campbell says the collision occurred around 10 o'clock last night during what's described as a routine training exercise. Investigators are on the scene. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are slightly higher today. We're joined by Art Hogan, chief market strategist at B. Riley Financial based in New York. Art, thank you for joining us today. And it sounds like uh, we have some uh, muted trading activity today uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is uh, the first quarter ends tomorrow. Yeah, always interesting a- action in the markets towards the end of a quarter, certainly, you know, month end, but quarter ends certainly you know, bring their own drama, if you will. There's a expression called window dressing where uh, portfolio managers want to make sure they're sending their report cards out to the investors with the winners and not many of the losers. So you tend to have some of that kind of action. But what was interesting yesterday, we didn't see that. We actually saw a, a flight to some of the losing, at least the March losing sectors, energy and financials and REITs all had a, a pretty good day. Today, we're kind of quiet and, uh, and, and likely uh, quiet for a good reason. I think the yield markets have calmed down quite a bit. So if you look at the yield on U.S. Treasuries, they've had a roller coaster ride in the, in the month of uh, March, right? We, we had a uh, two-year yield that was close to 5.1%, go down as far as three and three quarters, and now nestled in at about 4% and not moving parabolically on a daily basis. I think that is actually ushered in some uh, risk on attitude to investors over the course of the last couple of days and likely will continue. So if we get stability in the U.S. Treasury markets, that might help. We also have some pretty important economic data coming out tomorrow in the form of the PCE or the personal consumption expenditure uh, gauge, which is the, the inflation gauge that the Fed looks at. So, you know, right now, we, we lo- in, in large part, have put the regional bank drama in the rearview mirror. And I would say now that shifts our focus over to what monetary policy looks like. And it's a coin toss as to whether the Fed raises rates at their meeting, which doesn't happen until May. And we'll get plenty of data before then and an earnings season, which kicks off in a couple of weeks. Is, is this uh, cautious optimism about the uh, worst of the banking crunch being behind us or uh, uh, misplaced optimism? And I only ask because we seem to be in an environment where 
uh, depositors can really move their money around rather quickly, and uh, you don't know how much uh, of those assets are liquid at uh, banks, both big and small, just based on the uh, valuation of bonds. So if you do have uh, depositors moving their money around, uh, and in some cases large amounts of money, in search of higher rates, uh, does that put banks under some pressure? Well, it certainly does, right? So the the pressure that banks will be under, um, you know, on top of making sure that they have good risk management departments, uh, is that they're going to have to pay more for deposits in the here and now, right? So to, to get depositors to stay, they have to be competitive with market rates. Um, you know, so obviously there's going to be more CDs that banks issue to keep depositors in. And that, of course, raises their cost of capital. So they'll make less in their net interest income. So that, that's where the pressure will come from. You know, in terms of what happens down the road, in terms of regulatory changes, <clears throat> excuse me, we may well see a rollback of some of the deregulations we saw back in 2018 for the regional banks, meaning banks over a certain size, call it $100 billion, will likely have to go through the same kind of stress test that the larger banks do, um, which might circumvent some of the problems we've seen, you know, in, a, in less than a handful of banks uh, over the course of the last three weeks. And then very quickly, Art, uh, the serious question, too, is there a little bit of an opening day effect on uh, on the financial markets? I mean, the I know you're a Red Sox fan, but the Yankees are playing right now. So did a lot of uh, heavy hitters uh, make their, you know, set their financial positions and then uh, run down to Grand Central to take a train to Yankee Stadium? The uh, <laughs> I, I would certainly say there's a large portion of that being true. You've got a You've got a uh, uh, opening day in the middle of the week. It's on a Thursday. It's, you know, people have been waiting for some good news, and the start of baseball season is always good news. So, you know, whether you're going to the, the baseball game itself, which I wish I was, uh, or changing the channel over from some financial news network into uh, some sports network is likely going to be happening across all of Wall Street uh, over the course of now until the uh, until the, they ring the closing bell. I certainly think there's part of that. Well, you know what else we see that too, Rob? We see that during the NCAA's, right? So <laughs> I can tell you, you could hear a pin drop in our trading room when uh, NCAA uh, season rolled around and March Madness rolled around. So there's cer- there's certainly something to that. I don't know if it makes us less productive, but it certainly adds a bit of joy to our otherwise uh, volatile jobs. Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist, B. Riley Financial, based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, the use of cloning to replicate a beloved pet. An economy of words. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're getting an update on pet cloning. We welcome in Melaine Rodriguez, Client Service Manager with Viagen Pets in Austin, Texas. The website viagenpets.com. Melaine, thank you for joining us today. And and we followed this uh, technology with a uh, a great deal of curiosity over the years. I think it was like six or seven years ago we first uh, talked about uh, cloning your pets after they die. Uh, you guys have been around since 2015. Uh, just kind of walk us through the technological process first before we talk about uh, the number of customers you've had. Yeah, absolutely. So we've actually been cloning animals for almost 20 years. And we started out cloning livestock, so cows and pigs and horses. And then we started cloning pets in 2015. And that's our primary business now. And it's growing every year as more and more people become aware of this technology. So um, it's a pretty amazing technology that's very similar to IVF in humans, where we preserve cells from a pet that you may want to clone someday. So you can start with just storing the cells now. And then that gives you the option to clone that animal at any point in the future. 
And this begins with a biopsy while your pet is still alive. That's right. Ideally, the biopsy would be taken while your pet is still alive. It's a very similar small skin punch biopsy that any vet can do. And we have a biopsy kit that helps to ship that sample to us at the appropriate conditions. Now, samples can be taken from a pet that's passed away under certain circumstances. So in that situation, the sample would need to be taken as soon as possible within a few hours of the pet passing. And then those samples need to be chilled and then sent to our lab within five day. So that is a possibility as well. And what are the price points of both the biopsy and then the uh, cloning process itself? That first step of preserving a cell line is our genetic preservation service. The cost for that is $1,600. That includes the biopsy kit and the shipping and also the storage of the cells that we produce from those tissues for the first year. After that, there's an annual storage fee of $150 per year, and all of those fees do ultimately get applied toward the cloning. Now, the cloning, cloning cost for dogs and cats is $50,000, and that's split into two separate payments. A surrogate then carries the clone to term, and since this process has been going on for 20 years, at least as far as Viagen is concerned, uh, what is the emotional response from the pet owner when they meet their clone for the first time? As you can imagine, it's it's very amazing. I actually just delivered a little puppy um, just a couple of days ago. And upon seeing the puppy, the clients are in tears. I'm in tears. It's a very, very emotional. Um, you know, they're, they're getting this little piece of their beloved pet back in a way. And, um, you know, the process can take a while. It can take up to a year sometimes to produce the puppy. But in the end, it's all worth it and very um, amazing experience and emotional one. And this is uh, where philosophy comes in, the uh, questions of nature versus nurture. Uh, uh, it, the, the, the clone is, you know, looks like the, uh, the, the original dog or cat, but uh, do uh, your customers say that they have a similar personality? That is the question that everyone wants to know. Is this is the personality going to be the same? And although it's not something that we could guarantee, because like you said, there is that nurture versus nature, there is a strong genetic component to personality. So we do find that most clients will see lots of similarities in personality. We know that temperament and intelligence have a very strong genetic link. So those things tend to be very similar as well. But I wouldn't expect the exact same dog all over again. So we do like to let our clients be aware that it's not a replacement, it's not a reincarnation, but it's essentially a little version of that original pet. Um, so they could have similar personalities, but if they've been exposed to different things and raised in different environments, it may be slightly different. Melaine Rodriguez, Client Service Manager with Viagen Pets in Austin, Texas. The website, viagenpets.com. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday. And still to come, artificial intelligence puts its stamp on restaurant drive throughs Conversation that's on the money. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It may sound like a human at a fast food drive through but it may not be an actual person. Let's get the latest from R.J. Hadevi, Head of Analytical Research at the foot traffic analysis firm Placer AI based in Chicago. RJ, thank you for joining us today. How many fast food restaurants are actually using AI either to take orders over the phone or at the drive-thru? 
It's still a pretty small percentage of uh, restaurants that are using this technology, but it's been one of the fastest growing technology adoptions that we've seen across the category. And a lot of it came out of the pandemic when, you know, these chains were faced with labor shortages and needed to, to automate some of the processes that these that workers were, were usually doing manually. And so uh, order taking, which is sometimes one of the more tedious jobs for, for a crew member to, to handle, uh, it really became a, uh, you know, a technology that a lot of restaurant companies were was looking to adopt. Uh, there's some players in this place uh, like a Converse Now or a Presto that are starting to become uh, widely adopted by some of the chains. And uh, it's been interesting to see the adoption. And, and I, I think it's going to be one that we continue to see more and more uh, adoption in the future. Is this uh, technology similar to the tech that we encounter when we co- uh, contact a, a customer service phone line and they want you to uh, speak your requests into the phone instead of uh, pressing buttons? It is similar, but I do think it is a little bit more advanced than what, what we've seen out there in terms of customer service hotlines. And, you know, the, the demos that I've seen from this technology, it's been pretty impressive. Some of the uh, things they can do with it, uh, things like celerity voices or, you know, customized orders, things like that, uh, that really seems like, and, and they seem to get better uh, by the week too, these platforms too. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more and more of that, both from at the drive through and then, you know, for groups like Domino's that, that do take orders of the phone too, I think we're going to see adoption there as well. I don't think it's there quite there in terms of the technology for widespread adoption. But I think if this can help to, you know, not only free up, uh, you know, some of the tasks that, that workers may not like doing, um, you know, as well as maybe get more and more traffic through our, our data hasn't shown yet that this is enough to drive uh, increased uh, transactions or, or visits to a location through, uh, you know, particularly peak hours. But I think that over time, as the, you know, uh, the organizations get better at adopting this and how to work with the technology, there is an opportunity to see increased throughput during peak hours. Are we on the verge of uh, seeing this technology being scaled up to uh, bigger fast food chains, or is one more technological domino have to fall? Yeah, I mean, I think I, mean, I, I think we're getting close. I mean, I think some of the uh, the larger chains are starting to look at this. Wingstop, for example, Domino's, uh, a few of the QSR uh, quick service restaurant chains are also looking to adopt this. But typically, what they're doing is mostly you know kind of tests at the local market at this point too. So I think that they need to validate this. Like most technologies, they're going to test it in a couple markets, see uh, what they what improvements need to be made, uh, what they really need to do to scale it. But I think we're at that point too. We're kind of at that learning phase for a lot of these chains. So when be surprised to see uh, you know customers seeing uh, you know orders taken from AI technologies like that in the future. RJ Hadavi, head of analytical research at the foot traffic analysis firm Placer AI in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's noon business hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at wbbmnewsradio.com and the Odyssey app. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Got clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. 
engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.